Welcome to Time Travelling Team, the weekly podcast where we review every story of Doctor Who right from the very beginning. I'm Paddy. And I'm Trisha. This week we join the Doctor and Jamie as they try to find the wayward Tardis and get more than they bargained for in the evil of the Daleks. We'll be discussing the Doctor, companions, villains and give your thoughts on the story as a whole, as we usually do. We would also love to hear your thoughts on this story, so in order to join in the discussion, you can check us out at Time Team, that's T-I-M-E-T-E-A-M-P, on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram, or you can email us at timetravellingteam at teamproductions.com. Now though, I suppose I'd better give you the story recap. I suppose you'd better, and maybe in an accent they can actually fucking understand. I'm sorry, leave me alone, okay? <laughs> Episode 1. The Doctor and Jamie watch as the TARDIS is driven away on the back of a truck. They chase after it in vain and watch as the truck drives off into the distance. They go into the hangar that it originally was in and ask an on-duty engineer where it was sent to. He produces a note saying that it was signed by someone named Jay Smith, working for the Letterman Company. Jamie tries to ask him a few more questions, but the doctor ushers him outside. After they leave, the engineer communicates with a colleague who was listening in on the conversation from a nearby field. The man in the field advises him to collect his payment and then observes the two travellers via binoculars. Jamie says that he should have been allowed to ask his questions, but the doctor says he is suspicious of the engineer, as his overalls were too small for him. Before they can discuss the matter further, they see the engineer leave and decide to follow him. The man in the field, now identified as Kennedy, calls through to his base and informs his boss that the travellers will be following the engineer, who he identifies as Hall, back to the warehouse. The man in the base is looking at something through a magnifying glass when someone named Perry joins him and informs the man, who he calls Waterfield, that the TARDIS is on its way. Perry is enamoured with all the high-quality Victorian-era antiques in the office, and when he says the TARDIS doesn't fit with the aesthetic of the room, Waterfield explains that it is a special request acquisition on behalf of a mysterious benefactor, but he reassures Perry that it is all above board. The Doctor and Jamie arrive at the warehouse complex that Hall led them to and begin to search for him. Hall meanwhile meets up with Kennedy, who informs him that he was followed. The two start to argue when Hall refuses to help Kennedy to hurt the travellers and they get into a scuffle which ends with Kennedy knocking Hall out. The commotion is overheard by the Doctor and Jamie and they slowly approach the warehouse. They make their way inside and tend to the injured Hall whilst Kennedy sneaks away. As they look around for clues as to what happened and why the TARDIS was taken, Hall gets up and runs outside, making sure to collect his payment as he does so, and locks the pair inside. They eventually make their way out, but Hall is long gone. The Doctor says that their only lead is a packet of matches that he found inside that come from a bar called the Tricolor. He deduces that they belong to a left-handed person due to the snap pattern in the packet, and he suggests that they go to the bar and look for a man named Ken, which is the only part of the name they managed to get from the semi-conscious Hall. Later on, Kennedy is reporting to Waterfield, who is not happy about the altercation with Hall, but asks if Kennedy left the matches for the Doctor to find. Kennedy, who is taken aback by Waterfield's old-fashioned sensibilities and way of talking, confirms that he observed the Doctor talking to Jamie about it before he came to Waterfield's office. Waterfield produces a pair of photos of the Doctor and Jamie, and Kennedy confirms that they are the people that he saw. Kennedy asks why is Waterfield after them, but he refuses to answer and tells him to fetch Perry. After he leaves, Waterfield opens a door behind a bookcase using a key which leads into a secret room that is much more of a futuristic design than his office. He then picks up an antique and returns it back to the room. Meanwhile, outside, Perry comes across Kennedy, who has been listening at the doorway the whole time, and the eavesdropper tells him that Waterfield wants to speak with him. Waterfield presents him with the antique and tells him to go to the tricolor and give it to the doctor, who he names as Dr. Galloway, and requests that he come to the base at 10pm. After Perry leaves, he goes back into the secret room and begins operating some machinery. It begins to glow and he says that he has done everything that has been asked of him and he demands to know the truth but he gets no response. The ordeal leaves him strained and he staggers back to his office. At the tricolour, a depressed doctor and Jamie are trying to figure out where the TARDIS could be and why someone would take it. They both agree wherever it is, it is most likely being used as bait for a trap and the doctor says that he has an ill feeling about the whole scenario 
almost as if he can sense who their enemies are. Jamie asks the patron and staff if they know someone called Ken or Kenny, but to no avail. When he comes back, the doctor points out Perry's presence and they welcome him as he approaches them. He delivers the antique and their summons, and the doctor agrees to go at the appointed time. At the back of his office, Waterfield thanks Perry for his assistance, and after he leaves, Waterfield summons Kennedy and tells him about the doctor's arrival later that night. Waterfield then leaves and Kennedy picks the lock of his office and once inside rummages around looking for the key to the bookcase, having spotted it earlier on Waterfield's desk. He finds it and opens the secret room and starts to randomly press buttons and switches on the machinery, hoping that it will reveal more hidden alcoves. He notices a safe on one of the walls and starts to work on the combination lock, not noticing a Dalek materialise behind him. The Dalek then aims its weapon at Kennedy and demands to know who he is. Episode 2 Kennedy makes a break for safety, but he is killed by the Dalek, who then materialises again. That night, the Doctor and Jamie arrive at the shop half an hour early and sneak inside. As they explore the shop, they notice that all the so-called antiques actually appear to be brand new, and from what the Doctor can see, completely authentic. Jamie suggests that Waterfield must have access to a time machine similar to the TARDIS, and the Doctor says that they should go and ask him. Waterfield returns to his office and discovers Kennedy's body. The Dalek reappears and explains to him that he needs to be killed to prevent their presence being revealed. A horrified Waterfield lambasts the Daleks for its callous attitudes towards human life, but it replies that only Dalek life matters, and that Waterfield should continue to obey their instructions. The Dalek disappears again, ignoring Waterfield's pleas for help with the body. The Doctor and Jamie overhear his raised voice, but before they can go into his office, they go into hiding as Perry returns to the shop in an oddly quiet manner. They sneak up on him and demand to know what he knows about Hall and the man named Ken, who Perry informs him is actually Kennedy. He promises to answer the questions if they answer his. As they speak, they are unaware that Waterfield is observing them, and so he sets about laying a trap for them. He repositions Kennedy's body in the office, and places one half of a ripped photo of the Doctor in his hand, whilst placing the other half in some sort of box in the secret room. After they give Perry a partial answer about the TARDIS, he agrees to help the Doctor and Jamie get into the office via the backyard, since the main door has an electronic lock on it. Suddenly, they notice the door open a bit, and they go inside. They come across Kennedy's body, and Perry tries to call the police, but the office phone has some sort of static interference coming from it. He leaves to go find the police officer, and the doctor starts to investigate Kennedy's body. He discovers the ripped picture of himself in Kennedy's hand, and judging from the placement and state of the body, he realises the existence of the secret room, and after a brief search, they locate the key to let them in. They take a look around, failing to notice Waterfield sneaking up on them. Jamie notices the other half of the picture coming out of the box, but he opens it before the doctor has a chance to warn him, and together they succumb to the knockout gas that comes from it. Waterfield rushes in and places their bodies in the dematerialization area and all three of them disappear just before Perry and the police arrive. The doctor wakes up in the drawing room of a Victorian-style country house just as a maid, who introduces herself as Molly, enters with breakfast. She tells him that the house belongs to a Mr. Maxtable, but before she can confirm the date for him, Maxtable and Waterfield enter the room. Maxtable says the date is 1866 and the doctor demands to know why they stole the TARDIS and kidnapped him and Jamie, but Maxtable replies that all the events are being controlled by an evil force. Waterfield says that his daughter Victoria has been taken hostage by this force, and he begs the doctor to do whatever they ask in order to save her. Maxible then takes them to meet their captors. We then briefly see Victoria as she is imprisoned by the Daleks, where she is being kept on a strict diet in order to maintain her weight for some unknown reason. Maxible leads the doctor to a laboratory in a secluded part of his house. Maxible says that he and Waterfield have been intrigued by the idea of time travelling and have been experimenting with static electricity in an effort to achieve it. This alarms the Doctor, and Waterfield says that during their last experiment, the creatures which now have them enslaved appeared and took over the house. Maxible comforts the distressed Waterfield as he explains about how they coerced him to capture the Doctor and Jamie. The Doctor then demands to know what the creatures call themselves, and a Dalek suddenly appears. 
The Dalek says that unless he agrees to help them with an experiment, they will destroy the TARDIS. The Doctor refuses to be their slave, but the Dalek promises that no harm will come to him or the others if he agrees to help. The Dalek then tells him that Jamie will be their test subject and after it leaves, the Doctor rebukes Maximil and Waterfield for what their experiments have unleashed and demands to know what the tests are for. Maximil says that the Daleks realise that they have always been defeated by humans due to a factor that they could not quantify and so they plan to test Jamie to discover what it could be. Waterfield says that this could result in the Daleks being unstoppable. Back in the drawing room, Jamie wakes up and is given something to drink by Molly. Maximil's daughter, Root, arrives and dismisses Molly who says that the Doctor will send for him shortly. After she leaves, Jamie begins to search the room but does not notice a ruffian enter via a courtyard door who knocks Jamie out before he has a chance to do anything else. Molly returns with some tea and so the ruffian exits the courtyard door again. Molly assumes that Jamie is sleeping again and she goes to put a blanket on him before the ruffian attacks her and subdues her as well. The doctor returns to the drawing room followed by Waterfield who beseeches the doctor not to reveal anything as the Dalek instructed but lest some harm come to Victoria. The doctor says that he will not let Jamie go into anything blindly but when they go into the room they discover that Jamie has been taken whilst Molly has been left behind. The doctor wonders who could have taken Jamie and reveals to Waterfield that it if they cannot find him, then the Daleks will kill everyone in the house and take special delight in killing the Doctor himself. Back at the lab, the Daleks order Maxtable to tell the Doctor the experiment has begun and that no delays will be tolerated. Episode 3 Maxtable returns to the drawing room and is horrified to see that Jamie has been kidnapped, but the Doctor says he may have found a clue and presents a piece of straw that he found on the ground. In a nearby barn, the kidnapper prods Jamie with a club to awaken him. A well-dressed man enters, and the kidnapper, whose name is Toby, says that he has done what has been as requested of him and demands his payment, but the well-dressed man says that Jamie is not the person that he asked for. He nevertheless pays Toby, but tells him to get out. Jamie goes to speak to the man, but stops when the man has a fit, and his personality changes to that of a very nervous and scared individual, and he asks Jamie if he knows where Toby is, or if he knows anything about Victoria. Jamie says he knows nothing about her, but he stops speaking when the man suffers another fit. He regains his previous composure and introduces himself as Arthur Terrell and denies having hired Toby. Their conversation is interrupted when the doctor suddenly appears and Terrell makes his excuses to leave. The doctor then examines Jamie and the two discuss everything that they know. In her cell, a Dalek oversees Victoria as she picks up all her belongings and prepares to be moved to a new location. The doctor returns to the house and assures Waterfield that Jamie will do everything that is asked of him, unaware that Jamie has snuck into the room and taken a position behind a modesty screen so he can listen in to them. They leave to find Maxible and Jamie emerges from his hiding place, puzzled as to what the Doctor has gotten him into. In the lab, Maxible and the Daleks are discussing the commencement of the test and he brings in his new servant that he has hired for it. The Daleks hide at Maxible's request as he says the servant, whose name is Kemal and is a mute Turkish strongman, is not as civilised as him and could be frightened at their appearance. Maxible has Kemal show off his prodigious strength by bending an iron rod and breaking thick wooden planks. Maxible then gives Kemal his orders and he is instructed to protect something from Jamie who Maxwell paints as an underhanded villain. They leave the lab and go to the south wing of the house, where Jamie will try and get through the booby trap door with a spiked portcullis, and if he is successful, then he will have to deal with Kemmel. Back at the lab, the Doctor and Waterfield discuss the purpose behind the Dalek's plan, which is to discover the human factor and quantify it so that they can implant it into Dalek genetic structures. They view Jamie as the perfect candidate, as his travels with the Doctor will have given him a wealth of experience that has emphasised his own innate qualities. Maxible arrives back with the three dormant Dalek embryos from Scarrow, which will be the test subjects for the human factor. The Doctor, after demanding to be given time to think about the situation, agrees to help the Daleks. The Daleks then leave and Maxible reveals that Jamie's test will be for him to attempt to rescue Victoria. Back in the drawing room, Root enters with Terrell, where he has a tense encounter with Jamie, but neither man lets on the nature of their previous encounter to Root. Suddenly, Terrell suffers from another fit and he rushes from the room hastily followed by Root. 
Molly comes in and offers to take Jamie's bags to his room and they discuss the supposed haunted nature of the house. They also discuss Terrell, who is Ruth's fiancé, and she says that he is a good man and attributes his fit to PTSD from having served in the Crimean War. The doctor then enters and after Molly leaves, Jamie confronts him about the conversation he overheard him and Waterfield having earlier. He demands to know what they have planned for him as he believes the doctor is only using the Daleks as an excuse to trick him. Waterfield then enters and tries to help the doctor convince Jamie to help them, but he ignores their pleas and leaves to be by himself for a while. As he leaves, the doctor calls out to him and insists that he not do anything foolish, like a mount a rescue for Victoria by himself. He confides to Waterfield that he is merely taking advantage of Jamie's hot-blooded mood to help them. In the barn, Toby meets with Terrell again and demands that he be paid in full for his services. Threatening to go to London and reveal what has been going on, Terrell refuses to give in to his blackmail but suffers from another fit, which allows Toby to knock him out. He searches Terrell's pockets and takes out a few coins and a set of keys, which he resolves to use to rob the house. Back in the house, Molly meets Jamie and gives him the plans to the house and she leads him to the south wing so he can hunt the ghosties for her. In the subsection of the lab, the three scientists are observing the Dalek machinery, which will be used to record Jamie's thought patterns and emotions as he goes through the test. A Dalek announces that Jamie has started to make his way through to the south wing and the machines have started. Meanwhile, in the main lab, Toby enters and starts to nose around, but he is killed by a Dalek guard. His death scream is heard by Molly and Jamie, who sends her back into the main house for her own safety. After she leaves, Jamie investigates the door and finds the secret panel to open it. A bird, which had been trapped in the south wing, flies out of the door causing Jamie to duck and narrowly miss being skewered by the portcullis. He slips under it and proceeds into the south wing, where he finds Kemmel waiting for him. Episode 4 Jamie and Kemmel begin to fight, but it's clear that Jamie is no match for the other man's strength, so he uses his own agility and speed to overcome Kemmel. He also uses the environment to his advantage, forcing Kemmel to get tangled in the furniture or punch through a wall to ensnare his arm. He eventually manages to enter a room and bolts the door behind him so that he can search the room for a weapon. Kemmel charges at the door and breaks through it and Jamie sidesteps him and his momentum carries him out of an open window. He manages to grab the gutter to prevent falling to his death but his grip starts to slip soon. Jamie makes a snap decision and picks up a nearby bundle of rope which he throws to Kemmel and with great effort he manages to pull the mute giant to safety. Kemmel is confused by his actions as they clearly go against the version that Maxwell gave of Jamie. Jamie doesn't wait around though and carries on in his search for Victoria. He finds the room where she was kept and sees a handkerchief on the floor which had been left there as bait by a Dalek who was observing him from the shadows. Suddenly, Kemmel enters the room and pushes Jamie against the wall, narrowly saving him from a booby trap that would have beheaded him. Kemmel helps Jamie to his feet and the pair into a strange truce as they leave the room together, followed discreetly by the Dalek. In the lab, the doctor is observing the feedback coming from the recording machines and debates the benefits of Jamie's mercy with the Daleks, saying that without it he would have died because of the trap. Elsewhere, Waterfield and Maxwell discover Toby's bodies, but the Daleks prohibited them from informing the doctor. Maxwell is eager to please them, but Waterfield refuses until his friend reminds him of Victoria and the two remove the body at the assistance of the Daleks. After the Dalek leaves, Waterfield expresses his intention to alert the authorities about what has occurred after Victoria's return to him. As he moves the body though, he fails to notice Maxwell remove a pistol from the desk and conceal it inside his coat. They take the body to the barn and Waterfield thinks he hears something, but Maxwell dismisses it as an attack of nerves and sends him back to the house, finally giving in to his annoyance at the whining of the other men. As Waterfield leave, Maxwell aims his pistol at him, but is stopped by Terrell, who rushes out from his hiding place. Terrell says that Waterfield is not to die yet and insists that Maxwell obey him. In the south wing, the two combatants turned allies introduce themselves, with Kemmel writing down his name and agree to search for Victoria together, after Kemmel shows Jamie a flower which he had earlier given him as a token of friendship. They make their way through the various corridors and come across the Dalek who was following them. Now with the tables turned, 
They follow on after it and nearly fall prey to another booby trap that Jamie accidentally activates, this time a spiked mace on a pendulum. Back in the lab, the doctor explains to the Daleks that Jamie's instincts, along with his normal five senses, combine to save him yet again. Finally in the south wing, the duo locate the room where Victoria is imprisoned and Camel takes an antique mace off the wall and indicates to Jamie that he will act as a decoy against the Daleks whilst Jamie goes to save Victoria. Jamie is against the plan though, refusing to let Camel go on what is essentially a suicide mission and says that they will both need to save her together. Again the doctor informs the Daleks that the nature of self-preservation is an important part of the human factor as it helps with planning. Elsewhere in the house, Terrell accosts Molly as she claims to have heard Victoria's voice coming from the south wing. He tells her that it is impossible, citing the cover story that Victoria is on a trip to Paris. He demands to know what she was doing and threatens to beat her until Root intervenes and a furious Terrell dismisses her. Root, fearing for her fiancé's sanity, begs him to leave with her, but he says that he can't go, not yet. Back in the lab, Maxible demands that the Daleks fulfil their end of the bargain, but they assault him, pushing him to the ground and demanding that he obey them. As they leave, Maxible begs them to reveal the secret that they had promised them, but they say they will reveal it when they are ready. After they have gone, Root enters, ignoring her father's protests, and demands to know what is going on with Tyrrell and what has to do with Victoria. He doesn't answer and instead tells her that everything he has been doing is all in service of his alchemical pursuits to turn base metals into gold. In the south wing, Jamie and Kemmel succeed in disposing of the Dalek guard by using their coil of rope to entangle it and smash it into the lit fireplace. They then climb up onto the upper balcony where Victoria is being kept, with Jamie again saving Kemmel during the climb as the balcony ledge was coming loose on their ascent. They knock on the door to the room and call it to Victoria, with neither of them noticing a Dalek emerging from a secret door in the wall behind them. Episode 5. Jamie and Kennel spot the Dalek at the last moment and using the rope they manage to force it over the balcony to smash onto the ground below. Unfortunately this triggers an alarm that forces them to flee as more Daleks enter the room. They enter Victoria's room with the young girl being delighted to see Kemmel but before Jamie can introduce himself he and Kemmel set about barricading the door. Once the task is completed Jamie introduces himself to Victoria and presents her with the handkerchief. They tell each other the stories of how they came to be there, but Victoria is hazy on the details as she doesn't really remember actually being brought into the room. Jamie theorises that someone in the house must have helped the Daleks brainwash her. Meanwhile, the doctor is taking a break from the recording of the test results and is helping himself to a drink whilst conversing with Terrell in his room. Terrell is keen for him to leave, but the doctor instead wanders about the room, inspecting and passing along some observations he has made about Terrell, including the fact that he has not eaten or drank anything since they first met. Terrell holds a sword against him, but the doctor parries it with a screwdriver and comments on the fact that the sword has a magnetic field around that seems to be emanating from Terrell himself. Before the doctor can discuss anything, Waterfield arrives and summons him back to the lab. After they leave, Terrell pours himself a drink, but before he can taste it, he suffers from a fit and he can hear the faint echoes of a Dalek voice telling him to obey. He then goes to another section of the house where he joins Maxtable, who is in the process of hypnotising Molly. He instructs her to forget everything she thought she has heard in the house, especially Victoria's voice. After she leaves, Maxwell reveals that he is the one that coerced Victoria into going with the Daleks. Terrell suffers another fit and begs Maxwell to help, but he refuses and tells him that he will continue to serve the Daleks. He then opens a secret door and orders Terrell to retrieve Victoria and bring her back to him. Back at the lab, the doctor informs Waterfield that the test was a success and explains to him all the positive elements of the human factor are currently being transferred into the dormant embryos. He then shows Waterfield a trio of positronic brains that will be implanted into the embryos to help control the emotions. A Dalek arrives and demands an update on the test and leaves again once the doctor says that the samples are nearly ready. Waterfield then begs him to stop at the experiment as the Daleks are getting closer to their goal of being the ultimate beings in the universe, but the doctor says it is far too late for them to turn back. 
Waterfield tries to knock him out, but the doctor easily disarms him and says that their friends need to be rescued, with Waterfield asking if their lives are more important than the entirety of the human race. In Victoria's room, a strange liquid starts to seep in under the doorway, causing the barricade to melt. Jamie and Camel do their best to shore it up, and as a result, don't see Terrell emerge from the secret doorway and take Victoria with him. Victoria starts to call out their names, which attracts their attention, and after a brief scan of the room, they find the secret doorway and take off after her. They split up after coming to a fork in the secret hallway. Jamie enters a room where the door is half open, and once inside, he is attacked by Terrell. Jamie narrowly misses his sword swipe, and after finding a blade of his own, the two men start to fight. They are evenly matched and are discovered by Molly and Root, who sends the maid to summon the doctor. After a few more minutes, Terrell suffers another fit and collapses just as the doctor arrives. He tells Root and Molly to prepare transport at the stables and to take Terrell with them as far away as they possibly can. After they leave, the doctor pulls a small black control box from the nape of Terrell's neck and tells the traumatised young man to leave. After he is gone, Jamie admonishes the doctor for lying to him. Meanwhile, Kemal has made his way into the laboratory and comes across an unconscious Victoria. Suddenly, a Dalek appears and orders Kemal to bring her with him into the cabinet. A short while after they leave, the Doctor and Jamie arrive at the lab, but despite him cheerily telling Jamie the test results were a huge success, the young Highlander rips into the Doctor for his aloof and callous attitude since they arrived. Jamie tells him that once they have overcome their current situation, he does not intend to travel with the Doctor again. This saddens the Doctor, but before he can offer a suitable explanation to everything, the dormant Daleks awaken, and one by one start to approach the bickering duo. Maxwell also arrives and explains to Jamie the nature of their experiment, and together they watch as one of the Daleks approaches the Doctor, forcing him onto the runner of its shell and proceeds to cart him around the room, much to his delight, with the other two Daleks following on like a train. Episode 6 The Doctor delightedly announces that they have successfully transferred the human factor into the Daleks, as the trio say that they are playing trains. Maxwell leaves when they begin to display a childlike mentality towards things, and the Doctor uses this opportunity to teach him about friendship, using Jamie as an example. He also names them Alpha, Beta and Omega, which they delight in repeating as he marks them with the symbol of their respective names. However, the Doctor's happiness is short-lived when they inform him that they must return to Scarrow, an inbuilt imperative that all Daleks must obey. After they leave, Jamie wonders what happened to Victoria and the Doctor says that they need to go back into the secret passage to pick up her trail. In another part of the lab, Maxwell tries to convince Waterfield that Victoria is safe with Root, but is taken aback when Waterfield says that that can't be true, as he saw Root and Terrell depart earlier. Maxwell says that it must have slipped his mind and he is preparing to take a trip himself and that Victoria must instead be in the garden and assists Waterfield go to find his daughter. After he leaves, Maxwell makes his preparations to leave but becomes distracted by a small grey box on the floor. As he investigates it, a Dalek appears and reprimands him for touching it before reminding him of his orders to fetch the Doctor and Jamie. The Dalek then departs and Maxwell goes to summon the Doctor after another attempt at investigating the box. Waterfield reappears, having eavesdropped on the conversation, and demands to know what the arrangement is between Maxwell and the Daleks. Waterfield rebukes him for his selfish desire to learn the secret of alchemy, and the two men struggle when Maxwell refuses to divulge Victoria's location. Maxwell stuns him and he falls to the floor in a daze. A Dalek returns, demanding that Maxwell locate the Doctor immediately, as the device in the ground is actually a bomb that will destroy the entire house. The Dalek refuses to listen to Maxwell's pleas to save the house, and after it leaves, he rushes out of the lab in an attempt to locate the travellers. Waterfield wakes up shortly afterwards and watches as the Daleks all file into the cabinet to head back to Scarrow. After the last of the Daleks leaves the room, the Doctor and Jamie arrive and Waterfield tells them about the bomb. The Doctor says that he can't disarm it and they would not be able to get far enough away to be safe from the explosion. Waterfield shows them the Dalek for transporter and the Doctor says that they need to leave now, but Jamie's reluctant to leave without Victoria. However, he notices the flower that Kemmel showed him earlier on the floor nearby and he realises that they too must have used the machine and so they manage to escape a few seconds before the bomb explodes. In a cell within the Dalek capital, Kemmel is tending to an unconscious Victoria. 
She comes to just as a Dalek enters with Maxtable. He explains to a confused Victoria that they have been transported away from the house, but he does not seem to be overly concerned with her despair at the situation. He then leaves with the Dalek, and the two prisoners vow to protect each other. Outside the city, the Doctor and the others arrive, and they begin to make their way to the city via the underground tunnels the Doctor remembers using from his last trip there. Meanwhile, the Daleks rebuke Maxwell for his failure to bring the Doctor, but he gives in to his frustration at their treatment of him, the destruction of his house, and their delay in fulfilling their side of the bargain. However, his protestations are cut short when one of the Daleks knocks him to the ground, but before they can do any more to him, a city-wide alarm sounds. After confirming that Victoria and Cameron are still in their cell, the Daleks realise that there must be other humans within the city. As they begin searching the city, a Dalek commander encounters Omega, and when he sees his strange behaviour, going so far as to call the Doctor his friend, the commander orders him to follow him. Camel and Victoria are moved to another cell which contains Maxtable. Maxtable wants to know what is occurring, but Victoria ignores him, and when he advances on her, Camel stops him. A Dalek returns and moves Maxtable into the corridor, where the others hear him scream in agony. The Dalek then returns and takes Victoria out, with a furious Camel being forced to stay behind. In the tunnels, the three infiltrators hear Victoria's screams and they press on where they encounter Omega. However, the Doctor is wary and pretends to stumble so he can examine the marking on the Dalek's shell. He asks the Dalek about the screaming and it offers to show them to where the prisoners are being kept, but the Doctor forces it into a nearby ravine, telling the others that the marking was not the same as the one he'd put on the original Omega. They then press on to rescue the prisoners. Back in the cell, Victoria gives out to Maxwell for hurting her arm and forcing her to scream to act as bait for their rescuers, but he says that he was left with no other choice. Victoria then breaks down, thinking that she has led the others to their doom. However, the others successfully make their way into the city, but are soon apprehended by a squad of guards. They are led into the command centre, where they are introduced to the Emperor of the Daleks, who is colossal in size, standing at least 30 feet tall. Under his breath, the Doctor tells the others to prepare to run when he gives the word, and then turns to address the Emperor. He says that he has been successful in his plan, which was to introduce the human factor into the Daleks so that they would question the laws and morals of Dalek society and eventually rebel against it and bring about its end. However, the Emperor reveals that it, it too had a secret agenda, and that was to discover the Dalek factor, which showcased all the best traits of Dalek society. After saying it will eliminate the threat of the human factor Daleks, the Emperor blackmails the Doctor into doing another experiment by threatening to destroy the TARDIS. It insists that the Doctor implement the Dalek factor into the history of the human race. Episode 7 The Doctor and Jamie and Waterfield are placed into the cell with the others where Jamie derides Maxtable's quest for the secret of alchemy. The two get into an argument, with the Doctor joining in in an attempt to warn Maxtable with the Daleks, but he refuses to listen. Jamie grabs Maxtable, but a Dalek enters and intervenes, threatening to exterminate anyone that acts up again. Waterfield again tries to convince his colleague to exchange his ways, but he refuses. Everyone retreats to various parts of the cell to contemplate their situation, and Victoria strikes up a conversation with the Doctor, who is deep in thought. He tells her that he would be willing to sacrifice them all in order to prevent the Daleks from succeeding in their plans, but he suggests that maybe if they could escape, then they could flee to another universe or his home planet. He suddenly has a thought and addresses Maxtable, asking him about the mind control device that was placed on Terrell. In the throne room, the Emperor orders that the testing for the Dalek factor commence, but it immediately hits a roadblock when one of the Daleks questions the purpose of its orders. Meanwhile, in the cell, a Dalek offers to show Maxwell the secret of alchemy and instructs him on how to use the machinery for it. The Doctor notices this and calls out a warning to stay away from it, but it is too late as Maxwell enters the archway of the machinery and is suddenly put into a trance-like state. The Dalek returns and orders him around, showing the group that the Dalek factor has been successfully implanted into Maxwell. Back in the throne room, a Dalek commander reports the dissident behaviour of one of the human factor test Daleks and the Emperor orders that it be brought to the throne room immediately. Later that night, Maxwell hypnotises the Doctor and orders him to follow him under the guise of bringing him to the TARDIS. 
Jamie awakens and attempts to warn the Doctor about passing through the machinery archway, but it is too late and the Doctor is implanted with the Dalek Factor. Jamie watches in horror as the Doctor affects the same mannerisms as Maxtable and acts like a Dalek just as he follows Maxtable into the conversion control room. Once there, Maxwell gives him instructions as to the purpose and operating of each of the machines, and the Doctor requests to look at them. Once he is certain Maxwell is not looking, the Doctor, revealing that his conversion was a ruse, tinkers with the control box of the archway and replaces a component of it. He then signals for Jamie and tells him to prepare everyone to come through the archway, but they are interrupted by a Dalek. The Doctor requests to be taken to the Emperor and is told to wait whilst the Emperor is informed of his request. Jamie and the others discuss what has happened with Waterfield, suggesting that it could be a trap to lure them through the archway by their own free will. Jamie struggles to reassure them as he himself doesn't know if the Doctor was tricking them or not. In the throne room, the Doctor along with Maxwell tells the Emperor that all Daleks should pass through the archway again so that any of the human factor Daleks would have the Dalek factor re-implanted into them. The Doctor returns to the cell and urges his friends to walk through the archway, saying that it is now safe as he swapped out the control boxes. All the Daleks currently going through the archway are now being implanted with the human factor. He gives them a meeting place to go to and tells them that he has another task that he must see to first. Jamie goes through the archway first and once he confirms that it is safe, the others follow suit. However, Waterfield says that he will go and help the Doctor and try and bring Maxwell to justice for what he has done and he begs Jamie to keep Victoria safe. As they proceed to the meeting point, they come across more and more Daleks succumbing to the effects of humanization and begin to act like Alpha, Beta and Omega. Soon after, fighting breaks up between the two Dalek groups, with the Doctor urging the Human Factor Daleks on by reinforcing their desire to learn why they must obey without question. The Doctor leads them towards the throne room, where they begin to fight against the Imperial Blackguard Daleks. He is then saved when Waterfield throws his jacket over the eye stock of a guard who is sneaky up on him. However, the jacket slips and Waterfield pushes the Doctor out of the way as the Dalek opens fire. Waterfield begs the Doctor to keep Victoria safe and then dies after the Doctor promises that he will. The Doctor then urges the Human Factor Daleks on towards the throne room again, saying that they must destroy the Emperor before he destroys them. The Dalek city is slowly torn apart as the fighting intensifies, and in the throne room, the Emperor, along with the majority of the Imperial Blackguard Daleks and the Human Factor Daleks, is destroyed. On a cliff overlooking the city, Jamie, Victoria and Kemmel watches as it is wracked with explosions. Maxible suddenly appears and begins to wrestle with Kemmel, who loses his footing and plunges to his death. Maxwell then turns on Jamie and Victoria, but he suddenly turns back, responding to an alarm summoning all loyalist Daleks back to defend the city. Once inside, he repeatedly claims the Daleks will persevere and carry on forever. The Doctor sees this and leaves Maxwell to his fate. He rejoins the others where he informs Victoria of her father's passing, but offers them some consolation when he says that they may have seen a final end to the Daleks. He tells Jamie that Victoria will be joining them on the TARDIS and the trio leave as the city burns behind them. End of the story very good for a very very long story mm-hmm. and it is also the final story of season four so we have an extra special talk today. very good very good thank you very much for that summary patty you're very welcome and now shall we kick off the trivia corner not trivia spot what were we calling it Tri- trivia spot because uh I, again, there was the association with Dots Poetry Corner. Sorry, Dots Poetry Corner <laughs> from the Animaniacs, which unfortunately I don't think made a return in this most current season of Animaniacs. Okay, so we're going to go with Trivia Spot, which I'm going to update my notes so that we call it the same thing going forward. Yeah. So, Evil of the Daleks. The air date for this story was the 20th of May to the 1st of July, 1967. The writer for this story is David Whitaker. We have discussed David before. He's written some of our favourite stories to date, including The Crusades and Power of the Daleks, as well as some of our favourite Target novels. I won't bang on about how his version of Crusades is amazing. 
I actually like the fact that um, this season is bookended by David Whittaker and Daleks. Yeah, it works like that. Well. Yeah. Uh, we still have three. Well, sorry. Uh, sorry, the the Trojan part of it, because technically season four starts with the smugglers and Ten Planet. Yeah. I, I was wondering there. Yeah. I was like, actually, no. Yeah, no. It, it's, it's just very easy to forget, as we talked about last yeah. week with Ben and Polly's rambling. So we still have three more of David's stories to go, which are going to be The Enemy of the World, The Wheel in Space and The Ambassadors of Death. The director for the story is Derek Martinus. We have also discussed Derek before. He did Galaxy 4. Eh. Mission eh. to the Unknown. Good. Tenth mm. Planet. Good. And we will see his work again in The Ice Warriors and Spearhead from Space. Which, again, is another great kind of car- uh, sorry, career milestone for him due to the two uh, races introduced in those mm. stories. Very true. So, The Evil of the Daleks was originally intended to be the last Dalek story of Doctor Who. So, we've discussed how the Daleks were the creation of Terry Nation, right? And at this time, he was really trying to sell Daleks to American television to create a spin-off series based purely around the Daleks. So, he asked the BBC to give him back the rights to the Daleks and... As such, this story was meant to be a sort of send-off of bye-bye, have fun, (laughs) see you later. (laughs) However, literally like at the end, like like at the very end, Inns Lloyd was told, don't kill them off. Which is why the ending is left a little bit ambiguous, I would say. Yeah. Because... I don't know if maybe the BBC had an inside line that maybe the sale wasn't going very well or whatever, but that was what this story was originally intended to be. Like, I suppose like it might be a case of like no matter what goes on in the terms of business, you never want to kill like um, the goose that lays the golden eggs type thing. True. Um, but I think it'll be interesting if and when we do see the Daleks down the line, how that came back in. That would be a very interesting trivia spot. Yes, when we eventually get to it. So Mm. this was the last story on which Jerry Davis served as the story director. It's also the first seven-part story we've had since Marco Polo. It was fucking ages ago. Yep. (laughs) A very long time ago. As with Marco Polo, we have more missing episodes. Though at least one episode of Evil Survives, which is episode two... For those wondering how we watched the story, so the BBC is animating Evil of the Daleks, but at the time of recording, which is currently the beginning of March 2021, it hasn't been released yet. So yeah. what me and Paddy watched was going back to our old favourites, Loose Cannon, and their reproductions. So we had reproductions of episodes 1 and 3 through 7, and then the actual version of episode 2. An interesting fact uh, Loose Cannon, I think, uh, a couple of years ago, they kind of updated their stuff. So the first time I watched this, the sequence where Jamie and Kemal are climbing up, it's just a still picture of them climbing. Mm. Here, there's a little really bad Dire Straits circa 1980s <laughs> animation of them going up the rope. Yeah, I noticed that. Sometimes, I think they've done that in a few things where in some of their stories, they've added very uh, rudimentary, like, animation work they have uh i'm currently in this process of reviewing they're doing this uh, recap for abominable snowman mm. and they have animations of the yetis oh sorry of something moving yeah of something moving <laughs> cool so 
for episode four, the Doctor and Victoria actually only ever appear as film inserts as they were both on holiday during the weeks that this was recorded. I find this slightly funny because it's Victoria's first story and she's already off yeah. on holiday. <laughs> it's, it's, it's like that person that comes into a job and is like, okay, so what's the holiday package like? Well, bear in mind, like, I'm just back from three months off of work and I'm mm. already going, am I going to take St. Patrick's Day off? I think I'll take St. Patrick's Day off. <laughs> It's partially named after you, or you're partially named after it, so... Yeah, and it's our, it's national, holi- it's our national holiday, yeah. so... Exactly. Um, sound effects from the Daleks and the Daleks Master Plan were reused for the story. Makes sense. There was apparently a little bit of tension during the recording of this. Um, Derek Martinus apparently wasn't very popular with the cast. And I know we had tension back doing Galaxy 4 as well, though that was presumed to be the producer at the time, but I wonder if this is all part of it still sort of ongoing he who shall not be named yes he who shall not be named um apparently though most of this sort of tension is credited to fraser hines who overheard a conversation while he was hiding in a dalek casing (laughs) as you do as you do just try it on see how you go and then apparently overhear conversations that maybe you aren't meant to hear I don't know. I didn't go any further into that because usually accredited to overhearing a conversation at that point, I was like, okay, we'll leave that point alone. Although the Highlanders is Fraser's favorite story, he has claimed that this is the one that he wants to see returned. Hmm. Maybe because it's longer, maybe because the introduction of Victoria and the fact that Jamie has more to do compared to the Highlanders. Like, or, or well, there's that, but also I think that we'll get into it in our discussion. But I think this is like a real milestone story for a lot of stuff in terms of Doctor Who lore. Yeah, I, I would agree. Um, I think when it eventually comes out on DVD, like when the animated version is released, I'm kind of curious now to go back in and see what Fraser has like if he's doing like the audio commentaries or something yeah. to see what he thinks of it. So, on to our cast. So, as Waterfield, uh, Waterfield Senior, mm-hmm. we have John Bailey. This is the second of three Doctor Who acting credits for John. We previously saw him in The Sensorites, where he played the commander that was poisoning the water supply. Mm-hmm. You know, the weird guy that sort of, his plan made the, no sense. The, the leader of the Luke Kelly tribute act. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and we will see him again in The Horns of Nimon. Camel is played by Sonny Caldinas. This is the first of five acting credits for Sonny. We'll see him again in The Ice Warriors, The Seeds of Death, The Curse of Peladon, and The Monster of Peladon. Playing two different characters in those stories. Hmm. His non-Who work includes The Man with the Golden Gun, Hawaii Five-O, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Return of Sherlock Holmes, and The Fifth Element. I had a look through to see who he played in those. It's usually sort of like backgroundy characters. Hmm. Um... Like, in The Fifth Element, he played, like, an emperor who was obviously going to see the diva perform and stuff like that. Yeah, he's the one with the uh, daughter that slept with Chris Tucker's character. Yeah. Yeah. As Theodore Maxtable, we have... Sorry, I also, if you want to know, I know who he is in Raiders and I know who he is in The Man with the Golden Gun. Okay, (laughs) who is he in in those? In The Man with the Golden Gun, he is uh, Christopher Lee's henchman who ends up getting thrown into a vat of liquid nitrogen, from Mm -hmm. what I remember. And in Raiders of the Lost Ark, he is the Sherpa that Marion uh, knocks out with the flaming log. Ah, very good. Yeah. 
Theodore Maxtable is played by Marius Goring. This is the only Doctor Who acting credit for Marius. His non-Who credits include The Red Shoes, The Scarlet Pimpernel, Out of the Unknown, Tales of the Unexpected, and The Old Man at the Zoo. Marius passed away back in 1998. Terrell is played by Gary Watson. Again, only Doctor Who acting credit for Gary. His non-Who credits include The Avengers, The Three Musketeers, The Saint, Jack and Nori, War and Peace, Zed Cars, who's doing really good on the bingo card today. Anna Karenina and Agatha Christie's Miss Marple. You're laughing. Why are you laughing? Just the way you said Gary there, it reminds you of uh, Only Fools and Horses, which are meant Gary. And I just remember Kev from work, just like just randomly calling that out. So yeah, excuse me for kind of giggling at the past. Okay. Uh, Those were Gary's. (laughs) Not who acting credits. Yeah. Finally, we have a new companion. Mm. Victoria Waterfield played by Deborah Watling so interesting fact that I found out when I was doing my trivia the other day and I was going to message you and tell you but I decided not to bother Deborah was born 40 years before me on the 2nd of January 1948 so me and oh. Deborah Watling share a birthday both of her parents as well as her brother and her half sister are also actors she began her career as a child actor with a regular role as the niece of Peter Brady who also shares something in common with me Mm-hmm. <laughs> in the Invisible Man television series back in 1958. Some of her family members have also been involved in Doctor Who. Her father, Jack, appears in the serials The Abominable Snowman and The Web of Fear. And apparently Deborah remembers having a great deal of difficulty working with him. And she would regularly just collapse into fits of giggles, which <laughs> I love. And her brother, Giles, goes on to play several roles for Big Finish many, many years down the line. In her 2010 autobiography, Daddy's Girl, she revealed that she received her first kiss as a teenager from fellow young actor Michael Grace. And for a time after leaving Doctor Who, she also dated her co-star Fraser Hines. Interesting. Mm -hmm. She has gone on to voice Victoria in several Doctor Who Big Finish audio stories. When we get to her sort of end of, she comes back a lot in some of the expanded media and stuff. One of the things with Deborah, which again, we will come back to with other companions down the line, is apparently the Dalek operators um, would often prank her by using their plungers on her in rude ways when her back was turned. Fair enough. Very also, naughty Dalek operators. Also, our friend Paul from Half Measures is laughing now because you said Dalek. I did not say Dalek. You did say Dalek. No, I didn't. Yes, you did. No, I didn't. Yes, you did. <laughs> You and Paul are imagining things. <laughs> Sadly, Deborah passed away on the 21st of July 2017 after a short battle with lung cancer. Yeah, I actually remember seeing a BBC news report about that, which was kind of a shame. Yeah, apparently she was quite a heavy smoker, but I think I think she passed away like six weeks after getting her diagnosis, which is quite quick when you consider. Yeah. So, once again, thank you for the awesome trivia, uh, Trish. So, now we're going to go into the main part, which is the character discussion. So, as always, we have the Doctor, the Companions, both long-running and story-based. We have the Villains, and then we'll go into our overall. Mm -hmm. So, we'll start off with the man himself. Do you want to go first, or will I go first? Uh, I'll go first this time. Cool. The Sherlock Holmes level of deduction we see from him in the first, like, two episodes is really cool. <laughs> I really love his whole, like, you know, 
this person clearly was left-handed because of the way they tore off their matches <laughs> and stuff like that. Um, it really sort of highlights the fact that even though this version of the Doctor is a bit of a he's a bit of a hobo looking character and mm. like you know, he gets referred to as the clown and stuff he still pays as much attention as doc builded yeah um also this is this is a story that i think was perfect for troughton because yes. we've discussed before his amazing ability to emote very well yeah you know and the fear and anger which often conflict with each other when he's figuring out that it was the Daleks. It was done so well. Mm. And I'm so glad that was in episode two. Yeah. Because that's the bit we actually get to see. <laughs> um, I would have been really odd if that whole thing was like missing. So I'm glad that we get to see a lot of that. Yeah. Um, One of the things that I... I don't like watching it, but I like the basis it gives for the character is his confrontations with Jamie. It reminds me of Ian and Barbara fighting and I don't like it. But it kind of goes back to what we were saying in Macra that like sometimes the doctor uses his companions. Hmm. And I kind of liked this blow up better than the blow up that he had with Stephen at the end of the massacre. This yeah. one feels a bit more justified. Oh no, completely. Because again, that was just Stephen not happy with... Uh, he, he wasn't happy that they weren't able to get their way as such. Mm. Uh, whereas here, it's... You've kind of betrayed my trust. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing that I just think is hilarious is when he pretends to be controlled by the Daleks. It's just like... <laughs> it's great. But yeah, overall, I think you know this is a very strong um, Troughton story. And I'm really glad that we're going to get to see... Not that we're going to get to see more of it, obviously, because we still only have the one episode with actually Patrick himself. But mm-hmm. I'm really looking forward to the animation. Yeah. Because, again... All credit to Loose Cannon. We always give them credit because they absolutely deserve it. Stills and the back of their heads <laughs> yeah. can't do the same as, you know, movement. <laughs> I'll put mm-hmm. that way. Absolutely. And it's like, just one thing, like, like one of my notes here was like, just like, fuck the BBC for that stupid junking policy they had. Because this is like, audibly it's a fantastic like we we know it's a fantastic Trotton performance mm. but visually it would have been so so good yeah because of like his like seeing him kind of manipulate Jamie and having to rein himself in from kind of revealing what stuff was going on his encounters with Maxtable his encounters with Waterfield his encounters with the Daleks his encounter with the fucking uh, trio with Alpha Beta and Omega like you know they're playing trains Jamie they're playing trains like this is a fantastic performance from Trouton. Um and as you said, like the the real kind of fear he he gets across. And look, as as much as we love uh, Doc Bill, he was never able to really get across the fear of a scenario mm. because he always tried to maintain a very brave facade. Yeah. Whereas here, like this uh, this version of the Doctor has no such qualms about reveal like showing his emotions when he knows, oh shit, this is fucking bad. Uh, one thing I love about this story as well is that I kind of alluded it to in the 
uh, Macro Terror. But this, I think, is the first major incidence, or sorry, instance of what what I like to call the Dark Doctor, mm. like where he deliberately manipulates his companions into a scenario that yes is incredibly dangerous, but there's a plan behind it. But he doesn't share the plan. Like he doesn't even give an inkling. And then he tries to like you know like Jamie, who was like understandably fucking pissed off. Like he the like the Doctor like he, it's even when he tries to apologize, he tries to be kind of. Um, oh, they're not calculating, but basically, he tries to do it in a very business fashion as opposed to a very, you know, friendly fashion. Mm. Yeah, I think that's probably the biggest difference between this and Macra and even the first Dalek story. Because we get that like, in the first Dalek story, he lied to his companions or whatever, mm. but that was lying for personal gain. Yeah. And Macra was allowing a companion to remain in a potentially perilous situation Hmm. this was orchestrating the perilous situation and like when Jamie stormed off and the doctor turned to Waterfield and was like "Yo, very good on dropping the hint on where Victoria is and I'm like no don't do that to him but the interesting thing is right is that if that bird hadn't been in that house Jamie is dead yeah and that's like that's an alternate reality I'd fucking like to see you know yeah but that's the thing like that I think I think had they tried a storyline like this with Bill hmm. I don't think it would have worked mm, no because he Bill's not good at hiding behind his facade like he's good in the one sense that he can hide his fear but like when he's dealing with people directly, like <laughs> if he doesn't like you, you can tell. <laughs> like, but yeah, but like that's the thing is that I think if okay, he'd try and deny the Daleks the same way that uh, Doc Pat did here, okay? Mm. And like everything there is a mirror. But when it gets time to manipulating the companion, he uh, <laughs> like the um, Doc Bill is so transparent. That whoever is like you had it been Stephen had it been Ian whatever they'd know something is up, yeah. Because yes, he's an irritable fucker, but he's acting a bit more irritable than normal. Yeah. Whereas I think because Doc Pat sort of is a bit sort of flippy floppy in general, hmm. you can hide more behind that. Yeah, absolutely. And again, it comes down to like just Patrick John's amazing ability to emote, you know. Mm. Um, I'm looking forward to this being animated, but I'm mm. so disappointed. Like the animation, I'm sure will do. It'll do a good job. Mm. Um, I, I like the animations that we've watched so far, but it's not the same. Yeah, like there's there, there's only one kind of possible solution that just comes to my head, but it, it would only be for like a fan experience. Is I've said that his son Michael mm. is, and we, we'll see Michael uh, as you know. Uh, he has Doctor Who credits. He's a fantastic actor, and he has that range of like emotion um, that he can like get across in the same way that his dad did. So, if you just wanted to have like him just kind of you know like just rotoscope his face onto Patrick's body, you more or less get the exact same thing. Yeah, but um, no, I think outstanding performance. I think this is. Would I hmm. say it's one of his best so far? Maybe. I I I would definitely say it. Yeah. Like I. It's it's part of a long line of solid performances, mm. put it that way, and we have 
a bit of a way to go before we get to his rambling but this is definitely a contender for like top spot you know yeah the one thing i'd say as well about the doctor in this story is considering time travel <laughs> <laughs> yes on the notion of time travel so we commented back in power yes. that the daleks recognized him yeah and you were like how the fuck do they recognize him Hmm. and i think this sort of highlights the fact that not only do the daleks know what he looks like but they had photographs of him and jamie which sort of implies that even though we've only seen the doctor interact with the daleks a handful of times yeah they've been keeping track of him Hmm. which i i quite like because it kind of ties into the whole they know him in power, but like they haven't seen that body or whatever. So it sort of gives the idea that they're keeping an eye on him, which yeah. I think is really cool. Yeah, enemy of the state type thing. Mm. Yeah. Uh, cool. So the companions. So we have Jamie, Victoria, Waterfield, Camel, and we have the Three Musketeers. So yeah. Alpha, Beta, and Omega. What way do you want to do this? Because I think uh, we do we Victoria ha- last because she's the new one. Yeah. And that's our general way to go. I think if we just yeah. do the rest in order so jamie edward waterfield i got yes. very confused in your notes i was going to say right now because you just had people's last fucking names and i was like several people have the same last name you fucker we will see that was the thing i was like i had waterfield for dad and then obviously victoria is going to be victoria yeah but so. then for mastable you just had mastable whereas there's also his daughter <laughs> who yeah, has the same rude. last name <laughs> <laughs> Um, so Man I think Maxtable if we do, and woman Maxtable. If we do Jamie, Edward Waterfield, Camel, Alpha Beta and Omega, and then mm. loop back around to Victoria. Victoria, cool. Uh, will I take the lead on this one? Yeah. Cool. Uh, I love Jamie in this. Mm. Like he's absolutely fantastic. Like he's effectively straddled in time. Uh, sorry, stranded in time without the support of the Doctor. Yeah. He's also he's only his own wits and instincts to get him through this and like he doesn't compromise on his morals that's the one thing i love is that he's in a life or death situation with kemmel and he saves him yeah uh that is very reminiscent of ben a small bit with the whole thing with the cyber mm-hmm. i know going back to 10th planet but it's very reminiscent of that and i like that yes we have you know our new our, our we have our action man character and the McCrimmon effect didn't come into effect here. <laughs> no, like, he was very effective. <laughs> he was very effective. But I like that, you know, like he, he's just like, no, I can't leave. Like, if I kill him in a fight, fair enough. But I can't let him die when I have the power to save him. Mm. And it, like, it comes a cropper then, like, because Kemal saves him and they become a fantastic team. Um, I love the thing as well, like, if not affecting his morals, is that, yes, effectively, the Doctor is his ticket in or around the world you know around the universe but it's like if this is who you are i don't want to travel with you anymore yeah again which is a very ballsy statement to make because you are a fish out of water and i love as well that you know we're not just getting muscle from jamie we're getting intelligence in like you know his interactions with kemmel and it's like no like you can't just go charging off there because that's just going to get you killed we have to be smart about this we have to be tactical we have to be x y and z i am curious to see if that particular like tactician part of jamie continues so am i i I really am because (laughs) if we see him running headlong into danger i'm going to refer back to this because (laughs) they made a point of discussing how 
that's meant to be part of the human factors that he doesn't just run headlong into things um there is a slight like so the i think the planning component of it stays there because the i as i said i'm watching abominable and i'm not going to say in what context but it's there mm. um i would say after everything we've discussed over him this is probably his best performance to date in mm. my estimation and again like uh Patrick Trouton, it's from a long list of solid performances throughout his tenure so far. Yeah, I would agree. I think for me, like one of the things about Jamie that I find so interesting as a character is he's our with the exception of Katarina, who we've discussed before. Yeah. Jamie's our first historic companion. Yeah. But I think the previous story, particularly the previous story in this story. So where we're dealing with the 1960s and the 1860s, him being from the 1760s. Yeah. He's really shown that, like you said, he needs the doctor to get around. Hmm. But you could effectively leave him anywhere and he will eventually figure it out. Like one of the things that I have down one of my first, one of my first notes is that he is sometimes as subtle as a brick to the face. Yeah. Do you know, like his, he doesn't really understand the concept of discretion or that some things need to be kept secret. Like he's, like we saw it in the faceless ones, we see it again this week. He's constantly like, oh, what about the TARDIS? Like, and he's constantly calling out what it is. Yeah. Would you shut up? <laughs> <laughs> no matter how many times the doctor kicks him or shushes yeah. him or whatever. But that's just him getting to know the situation and getting used to what can and cannot be shared. Yeah. But what I like is the fact that like he's very observant. Like when they go into the Victoriana shop, he picks things up and he's like, "This is all. This looks brand new." Yeah. You know, and he immediately picks up on the fact that like he's like, "Hold on, this is meant to be from the Victorian age." No, like this stuff is. It's brand new. What are you talking about? Hmm. Um, it kind of shows that he's not just the brawn. He does have some brains in there. Well, yeah, the doctor has to educate him on things. There is some brains in there. And the other thing that I loved in the story, like, I love the whole, like, Jamie fighting thing and Jamie figuring things out for himself. That that stuff is all great. But what I love here is that, and I've mentioned it before, the fact that Jamie doesn't like being called Sir. <laughs> he is such a gentleman in hmm. everything. In his fight with Camel, in the way he treats molly in the way he treats victoria i did kind of have a note on like when he goes in to victoria's room was like i'm jamie recruitment and i've come to rescue you <laughs> sort of luke saving leia from the yeah. death star type thing but like i'll get to it a little bit more when we talk about one of the other characters his personality and his chivalry and how much of a gentleman he is when you could think oh like he's from the 1700s you know he might be a bit of a savage character or he's just the muscle he's not just anything he's just as complex i'd say just he is as complex as ben and polly were yeah there is more to him than just strength which i love and we got to see that i think we got to see that in spades in this episode yeah no like again like this is just and while it's not exactly a separation of car- a separation of the two lead characters like the same way that we would have had in some of the Hartnell stories 
you're you're definitely intrigued to kind of keep in touch as to like okay you know the sciencey part of it we can catch up on that stuff like but I want to see Jamie's adventure, yeah. and I'm looking forward to seeing Jamie actually getting separated, because like again we saw it a small bit in um, faceless ones, uh-huh. but obviously he was teamed with Samantha, so there is that kind of pairing. But I want to see him like proper solo, different area, looking after himself to try and get back to Doctor Antares or whoever. Yeah, but he has definitely all the capabilities to do that you know yeah like i'm sort of thinking like something like the way ian was in the dalek invasion of earth where he yes. was completely separate from everyone else that i kind of i'm really interested to see jamie like that i wasn't aware obviously when i started putting together the trivia and stuff and before i watched the episode i obviously became aware that victoria was introduced in the story i thought mm. we had one more of just jamie and the doctor um no that's the one thing about the Troughton era is just that there's no i don't think there's ever a single story where it's just them yeah I, for some reason i had in my head that we had that there was one and that it would be this one and um, yeah. then obviously i looked up my notes but i think yeah i'm looking forward to him being more ian like in his independence which i think is going to grow over time because hmm. he's learning a lot and the doctor is teaching him a lot and I, i'm looking forward to seeing him being a bit more independent um in terms of being able to survive because like obviously he has independent thought which is good yeah um like he he didn't buy what the doctor was trying to sell him like you know which is great cool so next on the list is we have edward waterfield yeah so (laughs) is it just me right or would he have been a great casting for jacqueline hyde oh he's terrifying looking I'm sorry, it's just like in the sense of the lighting on some of the sh- the, the telesnaps, like he has got that vi- typical Victorian look. He's got the long sideburns, his short hair is kind of spiked back, mm. and he's got a very kind of prominent uh, forehead in the sense of it's just like a, a small bit of receding hairline. And he's got such wide eyes that he can go very Jekyll or Hyde, yeah. So. Yeah, I did, I did actually end up looking through John Bailey's, like, imdb credits just to see if he'd ever played jacqueline hyde he hasn't um i think he would have been amazing though oh he would have been fantastic he would have been fantastic um he he reminds me a small bit of um like just as a small bit of bernard archard from power of the daleks in the sense of he has like a physical thing which you think would paint him as a villain but unlike bernard a small bit he has that softer softer yeah i think his his softens yeah whereas Bernard Archer it's just, it just yeah, doesn't unfortunately yeah, yeah it doesn't <laughs> mm. there's no way around that which is why I think a Jekyll and Hyde type character would work really well for yeah. him um, I do find it quite good that he did have a few issues keeping the fact that he's from the 1800s from the people in the 1900s because <laughs> he deals with Kennedy and Kennedy's like a proper cockney and it's just like you know like what like, it's always like what the hell are you saying although I don't know, like, if it was meant to be a plot point or if it was, like, what happens if he opens the blinds, like, the shutters? Like, was he keeping the light out for a reason? Or was it literally just what he said, that it was, he has to pick a nice view over sound? I, I, I think that, I think that was just, like, probably, I won't say a red herring, but I just think it was maybe, like, a throwaway line of dialogue. Because there were know. multiple red herrings dotted acro- across the story. Yeah. And I was like, is that a thing? Is that a shlo- <laughs> I'm like, Wait, do I- Obviously, I'm taking notes, but like, I took note of so many things, I just deleted because it was actually irrelevant. <laughs> like, 
Communism is just a red herring. <laughs> yeah. Um, the thing that I like about Waterfield, and like the reason why Waterfield makes it onto our list of companions, right? <laughs> because mm. he does, he makes some really bad choices, but for good reasons. And you can clearly see the guilt on his face when Kennedy dies, when um, Toby dies. Like, he yeah. clearly is like this. And he really goes through a sort of like Star Trek question of, we can't do this and like when the doctor's like oh but they have jamie and victoria and he's like but you're talking about the entire planet for two people yeah and one of whom happens to be his daughter and he, like... he's sort of realizing that the cost of what he now realizes they want them to do is way too high and you're like that that's like that's some strong fucking shit for him to be dealing with like which makes yeah. him a really interesting enemy to companion type character Oh, absolutely, because like this is the thing that like, he starts off, you know, obviously as the vi- the villainous character, and like almost immediately we know that he's under duress. But even under duress, he comes over to the side of the angels very quickly. Mm. But knowing, uh, like, and his, again, he's torn because it's a case of we can't let the Daleks succeed. But you know, I want to get my daughter back, and I have to make a kind of a Sophie's choice here type thing. Um, but like, I think it ended up that. And his death at the end, mm. it, like he's he is such a tragic character in this story. He really is, and he's such a like, he's a compelling tragic character because like even at the end there, when I was reading the the, the recap, I was like, ah, oh, for fuck's sake! Like you know, another really good character has to you know croak to get the impact of the story across. You know, yeah, I think it's really unfortunate. Like obviously, it's what allows Victoria to become a companion, but I think it's re- I think. Again, we ask ourselves this question with a lot of our story-based companions. Can you imagine Edward Waterfield being a companion? Because, like, in fairness to him, like, he adapted to being in the 1900s relatively well. He had a couple of issues, but, like... Yeah, like, and it's, like, despite his, like, kind of, I suppose, limitations of his science acumen. Yeah. You know, he's... Like, I think, like, back when we did our initial pilot of this, way, way back for, like, uh, Norm and John for mm-hmm. Mission Log we talked about a character in Pyramids of Mars that we thought could potentially be a companion. Yeah. I think that he would fall into the same field here. I think Waterfield would potentially, maybe not a long-running one, but definitely I would like to see a trip with him in the, the ship. Also, I think, I, I now think Waterfield and Scarman, that character, yeah, um, they'd be really good friends. Oh, definitely. I think they really <laughs> would be. And there's one thing I didn't add into the story uh, because I just didn't think that it was relevant for the story, but it's very relevant for our discussion. Uh, There's a couple of references from various characters that Victoria is the spitting image of her mother. Does that mean something? (laughs) No, no, in the context of the story, not really. But in context of discussing Waterfield's character, he's, he's also potentially sacrificing the last link to his wife as well. Yeah. But again, like, it's another thing where there were so many things where I'm like, is this important? Like, Yeah, oh, after that, yeah, and the girl was like, yeah, <laughs> other uh, than the f- emotional connection, is yeah. this important? Is this, no. Is this going to be, is it going to be like, is he going to, like, you know, is he going to be forced to shoot her or something like that? And it's just a case of, I know I can't shoot, you know, my wife or whatever the fucking case it is. But no, it just, I think it just adds something more to his character. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think he's a tragic character. I thought he was great, um, but tragic. Uh, cool. So now we have Camel. Yeah. Um, I have some thoughts on Camel. 
Yeah, I, I think with characters like Kemmel, there's going to be discussions and thoughts, and there's going to be positives and negatives. So you go over your thoughts first, and I'll go over mine then. Yeah, so we've had similar conversations before. Um, thinking back to Jamaica in The Smugglers. Yes. Um, where we have the only person of colour in the story. Mm-hmm being described as simple and undeveloped. Yeah. And you're kind of going, okay, the story is set in 1866. Hmm. Kemmel is also mute for the entire six episodes that he is in. He, The only thing, the only time he makes any noise is when he screams out at the end when he falls off the cliff. Yeah. And I'm just like, really? Really? Like, I get the fact that like they're pulling stereotypes to slot into a story so you've got like because he's described in loose canon as being Turkish yes and he's sort of dressed in the sort of almost Sinbad type yeah vest and, and whatever um it did kind of bother me that we have this one person of color who is described as basically being an undeveloped simpleton um on the flip side, also there's another thing as well, which it's a bit of a trope, which is like, he reminds me like a lot of Chocolat from uh, Moulin Rouge. I've like, never seen Moulin Rouge. You've so never seen Moulin Rouge? No. How is Ewan McGregor singing? I know, in all the years that we've been friends, you've never sat me down to watch it. So I think that's on you. <laughs> okay. First of all, <laughs> first of all, you use my Disney Plus account and it's available on Star, you lazy box. Okay, I didn't realise that, right? I didn't, it, do, it doesn't come up in my ad, the adverts. Um, but yeah, I can't believe you never watched Moulin Rouge. I can't believe I never mm. made you watch Moulin Rouge. I can't believe your wife never made you watch Moulin Rouge. For shame, Sarah. <laughs> anyway, character. The whole, the whole thing I'm getting at is that you have this person of colour or like this foreign character who is silent, who is very devoted to the young white hmm. ingenue type character Do you know, he yeah. keeps a flower that she gave him in an envelope in his pocket and I'm like really? <laughs> like, are there any more tropes you want to throw at this character? but in saying that because that, that was my negative thing on it right? because as soon as I saw him being described as simple and undeveloped, I was like, oh, for fuck's sake. However, with all that in mind, Kemmel is awesome. Yes. Um, so just kind of go on to kind of the stereotype things as well, just before we get on to how awesome he is. So he's kind of like portrayed as like a circus strongman. Mm. Uh, and again, the kind of, yeah, he's wearing that typical Sinbad garb, you know? I think had he been an actual, if he hadn't been like the stereotype of the the... Uh, foreign strong person mm. he probably would have been a bit more while remaining his Turkish aesthetic would have been a bit more f- properly dressed yeah. if you get what I'm saying um, and yeah look again it's it's the type of the type of thing that you're kind of going like you know are you yes you're writing about a character in 1866 and this episode has gone out in 1867 are sorry ni- 1967 sorry yeah it's only a year uh, are these mentalities still there as you're writing it or are you writing it to kind of kind of prove a point against how far we've come and that kind of stuff but 
like I would have liked to have seen him have you know, at least some bit of speech, you know, where the mute yeah. thing was a facade or something like that. But now we'll be on to the awesome aspects of Camel. Yeah, I the thing that I like about Camel is that you have the way that he's described mm-hmm. versus the way that he is. So yeah, he can't talk or mm-hmm. doesn't talk. We're not quite sure which. I'm going to go with can't. Um, but he's very good at communicating with gestures and mm. facial reactions and things. The point he wants to get across. Like, he was clearly hired by um, Maxtable. Maxtable to be a sort of strongman person, like, to do certain tasks. He was told to attack Jamie. But, like, you know the second that, like, if he'd found out that Victoria was on the other side of that wall, hmm. he would have torn it down with his fucking bare hands, like. Yeah. Um, his dedication to her above everything, while I think it does fall into a trope, it is commendable for the character that is presented, do you know? Like, he hmm. fully buys into Jamie's plans, the two of them work really well together, and... Even when in prison, he's still trying to protect Victoria, who clearly also thinks very strongly of him. And hmm. like I said, even though it would, I would describe it as a bit of a trope, they clearly do have a very loving friendship. Yeah. Even if I get the sense that there's like a major power imbalance between the two of them. Um, like the bit where she's like, you know, I'll protect you. And I love yeah. that the description just has like... Kemma looks at her incredulously and then yeah. shows off his muscles. <laughs> um, and like, I think um, just briefly, a lot of work, or I think a lot of praise should go to Sonny uh, Calganes because mm-hmm. even from the stills, like, you know, you get the impression that he's a very expressive actor. Yeah. And so, yeah, again, I think we have another case of much like um, the Moonbase, fantastic performances from all the supporting cast oh yeah I, w- I would strongly agree no i have a question for you yeah do you think camel would have worked as a companion on the on the ship no right okay why so because the character that we're presented with mm-hmm. i think would become overwhelmed in future travels like he does okay on scarrow but like if you I don't I'd have this fear that like if you put him in a Dalek invasion of Earth type scenario. Yeah. That he be it his lack of ability to communicate effectively with everyone. Because mm-hmm. bear in mind his style of communication is a two way street, right? Yeah. You have to understand what he's trying to put across. I don't know if it would work. I think it would be interesting, but I don't know if he'd survive more than a story or two. No, I think he would have, but under the proviso that no matter what happens in the story, he is paired with at least one of the other three. Yeah, I, I don't think he'd do well on his own. No, no, but no, by himself, unfortunately, Kemal would not survive. But paired with one of the other three, there'll be. I think there's three good relationships there. He's one with Victoria. He's one with Jamie. I think he'd have a really good one with the Doctor. I think so too. Um, while he may not have lasted very long, because there might be a one-dimensional aspect to everything, I I would have liked to have seen a couple of adventures with Kemal on the crew. Yeah, I think for me, in terms of, you know, would such and such be a good companion? I always try to think of, like, if you left them alone for two episodes, 
would they be okay? Like, can they draw they draw your attention? Yeah. Can can they draw your attention? But also, would the character be okay? It's like Waterfield. I think if you left him in a lab running experiments for two episodes, and he had stuff to do in the lab, and maybe had a chasing it, like he could do on his own. Hmm. I don't think Kemal could. But bear in mind, that's just based on this one story. So yeah. Uh, I just made a kind of analogy. Do you know who Waterfield is? Who Edward is? Mm. He is Marcus Brody from Indiana Jones. He is Marcus Brody from Indiana Jones. That is. Yes. <laughs> that that is exactly who he is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Got lost in his own bookstore. <laughs> yeah. No, that um, is that is exactly yeah. who he is. <laughs> yeah. But um, yeah, no, like, I agree that like you know by himself he probably wouldn't have lasted long. But as a companion to whichever one of the trio. I think there could have been a couple of stories involving Camel. Mm. Um, but alas, unfortunately, we'll never know because he died like a hero. Yes, he did. So next we have <laughs> Alpha, Beta and Omega. <laughs> I, again, I was so confused when I read your notes to draw up the character list. I was like, what the fuck yeah. is he all about? <laughs> but go on. Uh, because I've been watching a lot of DuckTales lately, I would have preferred Huey, Dewey and Louie, but fuck, <laughs> we don't have that. Um, I was, I, like, I remember the first time I watched this, I got, like, annoyed in a good way. And here, it kind of doubled down. I was like, why did he have to introduce such a lovable concept of the choo-choo train Daleks and then kill them off in that same fucking episode? Um, I think it's a, a very fascinating thing because there's always this kind of thing of... Um, it's suppose it's a trope on sci-fi where you have like be it ai or an alien race or that kind of stuff that's defined by one characteristic and when they introduce the when they try to co-opt the characteristic that's constantly defeated them it makes for an interesting story because of the schism that would happen in their society so i would love to see expanded media based on because there's loads of expanded media about daleks i would like to see one specifically based on the human factor daleks and what their society would have been like had they kind of uh, overthrown the Imperial Daleks. Or I want to see like a small little uh, colony of human factor Daleks out there in the universe, you know? Mm. <laughs> Choo-choo. <laughs> they were Choo. creepy as fuck. <laughs> well, yeah, because like... so creepy. <laughs> like... <laughs> I do, I was, I, I was, oh, no, no, it's just it's. it's I'll it's, do the Ron voice. Don't, don't. <laughs> to be honest, it's like the Ron voice, yeah. and then they're like in second, <laughs> they're second picking at the moment. It's oh like, my god! You know, like, you're, like, you're, you're, I just realized you're gonna hate Abominable Snowman. You're gonna hate the Abominable Snowman. That's that's weeks away. Leave a lot. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> but like when they were like dizzy Daleks, dizzy yeah. Daleks, I was like. Oh my god, it's the fucking creep. It's children Daleks. Yeah. It's creepy as balls. Like, what the yeah, fuck? It's the Daleks going, you must obey. Why? <laughs> no, no, I found it an interesting concept. I'll get to more when we get to the overall, when we get to what the yeah. Daleks plan was. But in terms of those three in particular. Yeah. <laughs> it was the weirdest thing I'd ever seen in Doctor Who, I think. From an unearthly child to here. Like, mm. it was just weird. Knowing what I know of the Daleks, that was weird. 
but it was so fun. Every time they spoke, I was just like, <laughs> "Can this be over?" Yeah. Uh, oh, but yeah, again, again, like this is another thing that's so good about the story is the concept that it brought to the table. Yeah. Um. So I suppose now we will come to the lady of the hour. I have very little to say about the lady. I have, of the I'm hour. the same. <laughs> I have very little to say about her as well. There's two things. The main note I have about her is that she's a bit of a Cinderella introduction. But she has almost yeah. a literal Cinderella introduction as it starts with her feeding birds at her window, right? Yeah. Um, but the whole idea of her being locked away and all that kind of stuff, it's a, it's a very fairy tale, save the princess type thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think she is quite brave. You know, yeah. and certainly when she's paired up with other humans and she realizes that she's not on her own, you can mm. see that, like, you know, I, you know, we joked about it with Camel, her saying that she'd protect Camel, but I think she would have, I think she would have definitely tried to. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I think there's a lot of heart there. Yeah, um, definitely. But she didn't really get to do a whole lot in the story, so not much to say. The question I have, though, so you have in your story summary, mm-hmm. that they weigh her. For some bizarre fucking reason. Yeah. And other than the fact that... See, this is what this is another one of these sort of like, what the fuck was that about? Type fucking things. Where it's like... Other than the fact that... They clearly told her father that she would be fine. Mm. If he did what they wanted. And her not eating and losing weight... Is them breaking their word... So they will force her to eat. Yeah. But I'm like, but why do they care about breaking their word? But it's like, or like, but why care about her weight then? If that's the thing, or like, are you so literal that she has to be, like, min- well, no, I, th- well, I think it's the whole the whole idea is that like she had lost a lot of weight because she wasn't eating. Mm. I think that was that's what I took from that was that like they made her go in the machine to measure how she was doing, like health wise, and. They saw that she, like, the fact that they commented on the fact that she had lost weight. Yeah. And was like, you will eat the food we bring you or we will force it into you. Um, th- That part was actually quite scary, but, like... Yeah. Why do they care is the question I have. Because Edward clearly never sees her. Mm. And they're Daleks. They're not going to give her back. Yeah. I, I don't know. It was just, it was like a weird obsession that i don't quite understand well maybe they're operating under the assumption that they're they'll be successful in capturing the doctor and if they're successful then they need a bargaining chip and if they have no bargaining chip then there's then the plan to because if there's no bargaining chip on the table the doctor will just do everything he can to fuck with their plan yeah but like why let anyone get near her anyway i don't know like right when the doctor doesn't actually meet victoria until he sees her in uh, yeah Excuse exactly until, 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 yeah until he sees her in the jail cell yeah. on Scarrow so like, maybe another just maybe possibly just another fucking red herring by yeah. <laughs> David Whittaker David you fucker like <laughs> <laughs> uh, one other note that I have about Victoria is that she's an incredibly compassionate person yes and I would be curious because I, I think that's a gr- compassion is a great trait to have in a TARDIS crew member uh, but I'm just curious like I'm curious to see the scenarios where it will potentially come back to bite her in the ass or not. I'm interested in terms of her compassion. I'm interested to compare her to Vicky. So yes. We're gonna have Vicky versus Victoria in terms of 
Will Victoria be going around adopting giant ants? Yes. <laughs> Things like that. I guess we'll just have to wait and see. We will. We will. Vic- Vicky's menagerie versus Victoria's, I don't know. So moving on to our villains, if that was yes. all you had about Victoria. So we have our human villains, and then we have the Daleks. So why don't we do human villains first, I think, um, and then do the Daleks after. Cool. So we have Terrell the Terrible and Karl Marx Maxtable, because I'm sorry, he looks like Karl Marx. Yeah. Do you know what? Actually, he reminded me of um, not his hair so much. But that's your beard 30 years from now, by the way. Sweet. <laughs> <laughs> like, if you take your beard that you have now yeah. and just dye it white, you get his face. Cool. Fair enough. <laughs> um, Is that a good thing or a bad thing? I don't know. Just an observation. <laughs> so if we go with Arthur first, mm-hmm. what was the point of him? Other than See, another red herring? <laughs> You see, there's a lot about this story in that, kind of, again, like the whole thing with Toby. Like, was like, why the fuck was Toby? Who was he meant to kidnap, and why was he meant to was he meant to kidnap Root? If that's the case, he's got fucking terrible vision. I thought he was <laughs> meant to kidnap Waterfield. I like, I think there's just yeah, like again, it's there's just so many fucking kind of I won't say plot holes, but it's just like it's almost like an RPG, you know, where there's loose threads that go nowhere. Yeah. Um, but maybe it's just a kind of is he possibly like a precursor because obviously he has the control box on him mm. is he like a prototype version of the human factor or sorry Dalek factor human I don't think so because I think the Daleks are actually speaking through him I think he's mm. their eyes and ears mm. um, he, he's definitely a villain of circumstance poor bastard um well, you know, he's a villain of circumstance, but he's an absolute fucking asshole anyway. Yeah, but this is the thing. Is he, though? Because he's the character who I think creates the best juxtaposition with Jamie. So hmm. Jamie, you have the guy from the past, a little bit rougher on the edges, but a pure gentleman. And then you've got hmm. Terrell, who is a terrible person. The way he treated Molly was an absolute disgrace. And a great juxtaposition versus the way that Jamie treats her. But yeah. we also know that when he was himself, he was beside himself at asking where Victoria was. Like He was really upset and really concerned about her. And so I wonder, like him losing his mind at Molly, because bearing in mind, Maxwell then hypnotizes Molly and he's clearly being, con- like, Terrell is clearly in Dalek mode during mm-hmm. that. So, like, is his anger the Daleks' anger? Is it his own anger? Or is it this whole, like, mental breakdown in the middle? I don't know. See, the way I read it, no. Okay, and again, I could be wrong on this, is that the control box that's placed on him... Um, I I would like to see... I would like to have seen more characters... Of varying lines on the, you know, fucking lawful good and chaotic evil <laughs> scale <laughs> under this control box. Because I have a th- my whole reading to this was that whatever negative qualities a person has, this thing emphasizes it. To bring out the, the, the innate, like, I suppose, like, evil in a human or whatever the case may be. So I had a feeling that 
I have a feeling that Terrell is one of those characters that he has his standing in society and Molly has her standing. And Yeah. But again see, like that's that's my reading to it based on what we have here. But whether it be a red herring or just a very poorly developed plot thread, it's one thing I suppose that we'll never really know because he's bundled off so quickly that he can't really ask about what did I do, you know, while I was yeah. It. Did you also get the impression that not only was he being controlled by the Daleks through the Dalek control box, but did you also get the feeling that Maxtable had probably hypnotised him at least once as well? I think maybe Maxtable hypnotised him so that they could put the control box on him. Yeah, because clear, cause I think there's like possibly like three versions of him at war in his own mind. You have Terrell, just Terrell, who I think is the one who was so shocked and upset when Jamie um, was the, was kidnapped and who was like, where's Victoria? Where's Victoria? Like, he clearly was really upset. Um, and then we have Maxtable's machinations and the Dalek control. Um, is it, I'm torn between... He's a villain of, villain of circumstance in this story. He may not be a nice person. We don't know. Yeah, no, yeah, no, I'd agree that he is a villain of circumstance. I, 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 again, it's just... My, my assumption of him, based on what I've seen, is that I think he's probably just that kind of dickish character from in around that era, in that society. But in this scenario, I think he is a villain of circumstance mm. because he's being manipulated. Yeah. The only thing that leads me to believe that he might not be as bad as he was with Molly all the time it's that Ruth mm. seemed really like what the fuck is this um, his behaviour seemed to take Ruth aback a bit yeah but then again maybe he's just really nice around her because yeah and again like Ruth is, isn't really developed so we don't we don't get the sense as to what she's like on um... see this is the thing when you come into these scenarios middle of the story yeah. that we don't get a real gauge for what these characters are like beforehand mm. like say Maybe unlike the sensorites, because you know we'll go back to <laughs> Jack ba- uh, ba- John Bailey being in them, um, we get the indication that from the off, the first elder and second elder are very rational individuals, whereas the city administrator we know is a complete fucking xenophobe, mm. and so we we know that that's we've come into the middle of that particular story because the guys land on the fucking ship, whereas here there's an awful lot of stuff going on, there's an awful lot of characters, so that it's you'd kind of want to know like a, you want to see like a prequel short story as to the lead up to it yeah uh so now we have uh maxtable so you described him as Karl marx yep this time he's a capitalist yeah every time someone said his name and this includes every time either of us has mentioned his name and you mentioned his name all throughout the summary mm-hmm. i got a song stuck in my head did you ever see the episode of QI? It's from one of the early seasons because Stephen Fry looked really young in it. Where mm. Alan Davies sings a song about Peter Cushing. Oh, Peter Cushing something lives in Whitstable or Pe- something else. Peter Cushing it? lives in Whitstable. I have seen him on his bicycle. I have seen him, seen him buying vegetables. Peter Cushing lives in Whitstable. Every time someone said <laughs> Maxtable, that song just started in my head. Like, it won't get, it won't get out. It won't get out. <laughs> It's also got a Doctor Who connection because Peter Cushing played the Doctor. Yeah. And Peter Cushing 
lived in Whitstable and apparently Peter Cushing was buried in Whitstable but literally the whole time was like yo Max what would you do and all my head's like Peter Cushing lives in Whitstable I have seen him on his bicycle <laughs> no stop it I don't want it in my head anymore again I could do the Ron voice to get no, him to no <laughs> no okay um, so yes Maxible yeah. um, I'm I, I think he's kind of an interesting character in the sense of his goal or his pursuit isn't a scientific achievement it's I want gold based on a weird pseudoscience so my thing with Max Double right is I was trying to get I was trying to pin him down hmm. throughout the story right the one thing that I think carries through throughout the story is I have money therefore I have power and I can do what I please and like hmm. the fact that he says to um Waterfield you know no law is going to cover what we've done the law can't do anything to us as like people are dying you have kidnapped people you're effectively in the in terms of jamie you're effectively torturing someone and conducting experiments on them as like but he has so much money and so much power and his vision is so great that it doesn't matter and i'm like oh fuck you and the thing is that like you know waterfield did what he did because the daleks held something over him yeah maxable was because he wanted to change metal into gold and like i i originally had a note being like is he going to get a midas type you know comeuppance where like they turn yeah. his daughter into gold or something. Do you know what I mean? Um, Crown for a king type thing. Yeah. Uh, they didn't quite go that far, but like, mm. really? And like the fact that he said like, his lab is the one real thing in the whole of his existence. Poor Ruth. <laughs> like, yeah. he didn't give a shit about his daughter. Like, what the hell? Again, because I've been watching a lot of DuckTales, he's very reminiscent of Flintark Blomgold, the evil version of Scrooge. <laughs> Yeah, but like, I don't. He's a villain where I wouldn't even consider him complicated. He's a selfish prick who thinks that because he has money, hmm. he can do whatever he wants, and the only thing he wants in life is more money. And also, yeah, you moron, the creepy death machines betrayed you. What do you expect? Uh, speaking of creepy death machines, his Dalek persona is fucking creepy. It's also super creepy in the version that we watched because they clearly only had like three stills to go with. So they yeah, used just, the same like big eyed yeah. fucking... <laughs> white, white, white eyed bushy beard, you know? Um, yeah, like... And as well, like it gave him his this weird kind of mind over matter type thing because he was able to out-wrestle Kemal enough to push him towards the edge of the ledge. And um, I was like, had Max had Maxtable that lives you know in which the boat goes by his vegetables Stop. and by his bicycle um, had he been like regular maxable i think camel would have just like fucking bitch slapped him away so yeah i part like you you asshole you you robbed us of camel i think part of that may also be that like camel sees him as an old man yeah and i don't know if camel fully understood that what like what was going on yeah cuz Kemmel doesn't know the Daleks. He doesn't know other worldly villains. And Maxible had always been a bit of a dick to him. So I don't know if he realised. 
I like I I see. I think he, while he may not have known the ins and outs of it, he probably knew that Maxwell wasn't normal. Well, I think he, I think he knew that Maxwell had sided with the Daleks. I don't think he, yeah. I don't think he would have realized the possibility that Maxwell was, yeah, quote unquote, a Dalek at that time. Like maybe some kind of weird Stockholm syndrome where he's just acting like them. Yeah. Kind of like what Lesterson, you know, which, you know, Lesterson's complete mind yeah. snap in Power of the Daleks. Lesterson, 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 Lesterson. <laughs> uh, so now we come on to the Daleks. Yeah, so do you want to do the Daleks in general or do you want to do the Emperor first? I think we do Daleks in general because the Emperor is a new yeah. part of the Daleks hierarchy that I think deserves to be top yeah so i have the same question that i've had numerous times before with the daleks why are the daleks using humans to do their dirty work like i i legit don't understand like i legit don't understand why did they need the doctor to go back in time to apply the dalek factor to all of human history when they have time travel that's more accurate than his maybe it's by okay so when it comes to the doctor side of things i think it's a case of all he really needs to do is go back far enough that it would become like a progenitor gene and if he just so happens to you know fucking die rather than risk risking dalek life yeah but then but like <laughs> if he wasn't destroyed on fucking um oh what was the fucking planet from the chase uh mechanus yeah, yeah, that maybe that arithmetically challenged fucking Dalek could have been sent back with them and get rid of two birds with one stone. Um, I, I basically like this one kind of there's nothing really new about the Daleks in this other than they're like I said Daleks doing Dalek things, but this time they're in the past. Yeah, yeah, like there's there's nothing new. Well, the only new thing is suddenly wanting to trap the Doctor and force him to do something. That's new. Well, like, Oh yeah, but like, but not in the sense of like you know, like when we talked about um, them in the Daleks invasion of Earth, they ha- were now capable of moving around oh, yeah, without yeah. the purpose per- per- of static electricity, mm. and like there, there's no, with the exception of the Emperor, there's no new facet of Dalek society or Dalek technical achievement that we haven't seen before. Mm. I have a question. Right, so, yeah, this is the thing, right? Yes, I'm aware it's a TV program and I'm aware that the reason why they had pictures of the Doctor and Jamie and the reason why Jamie was chosen is because the other two's contracts had expired and they're not going to be in the show anymore. Mm-hmm. I am aware of this. However, in-universe, right, bearing in mind this was meant to be the final story originally with the Daleks, they had never met Jamie, no. whereas they had met Ben and Polly. So surely it would have made more sense for them to seek Ben and Polly yeah. with Troughton than it would make for them to seek Jamie. Now, again, I know it's just a TV program. I know there are schedules and characters get written out and people leave. I get it. But in universe, I think it actually would have been interesting if they had a picture of all three of them. Yeah. Not knowing no. that Ben and Polly weren't going to continue on. Like, they yeah. knew that the Doctor and Jamie and Ben and Polly would be on Earth at this date, at this time. I wonder, would this be explained in the no- Sorry, would this be explained in the novelization? Maybe. David's quite good at that. 
He's quite yeah. good at ex- expanding things, so I'd be curious yeah. about that. Cool. Um, so potential potential Christmas slash birthday present. Gotcha. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or just a boredom present when you decide you want to get it. Yeah. Uh, a COVID um, present. Um, I've yeah. had lots of those this year. Um, yeah, I think it's an interesting story for the Daleks, and it kept me really interested because I was like, going, "Why do they care about this human factor? Why would they want to include it?" what is all this about and then when it's like the fact that like they were doing it as like a a double blind where like the doctor was identifying all of these things to add in Mm. and they were like equating that to the things that they had that they could add to humans basically what they're adding to the like human dialects which those three were clearly just a fucking a write-off like they were just a fucking yeah give them something to sell the story um good morning daleks good morning doctor yeah um but like i just don't get why they didn't do it themselves other than we need again i'm aware it's a tv program if if they did it themselves we wouldn't have a story (laughs) i'm aware of that (laughs) but yeah uh yeah it's complicated it's good though it's good yeah but complicated it's probably i think it's probably of all the stories we've had with the daleks so far it's probably the one that's had me question the daleks the most in terms of Hmm. what the fuck are you doing and like i've been interested to figure out like what the hell is this (laughs) yeah first of all you're weighing them then you're you're (laughs) next you'll be like i don't know like dressing them or whatever the case is Perhaps um, Madam would like a sarong. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you said the only difference is the Emperor Dalek. Yes. The ultimate big bad of this story. So I have a couple of questions about the Emperor Dalek, if yeah. you wouldn't mind answering. So, first of all, does Jabba the Dalek have a Napoleon complex? <laughs> Why is he so big and unwieldy? Can he actually move? Does he want Solo and the Wookiee brought to him? Okay, I have a possible reason why he is so large, mm-hmm. and I do not think he moves. I think okay, so he's on this like platform, <laughs> and there's all these huge cables coming into him. I think he has a larger casing. I don't think the Dalek inside is that much bigger. Well, that's the thing is that the sh- the only existing shots of him, the lighting is reflecting too far off the inner pod, yeah. so we can't judge. Yeah, so I don't, I don't think the Dalek itself is that much bigger, or if it is bigger, I mean, it would maybe be like twice as big as normal. Like I don't see it being this huge hmm. blob, right? That makes no sense. My read of it was his casing is specifically designed. For him to interact with all of Scarrow's base systems. Because otherwise, why does he have the cables coming off him? That is my in-universe explanation. And you're making, like, smiley faces at me. So you clearly think that I'm just, like, grasping at No, 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 it's not. All I can think of was good chair, good chair, good lumbar support. <laughs> Great view of utter blackness. <laughs> yeah, I am convinced, though, that... The only way for that for the Emperor Dalek to move away from that podium, yeah, is that they disconnect the wires and he just goes down, 
Yeah. And there's maybe like a, a, a tank or something that he goes into to allow him to get nutrients or whatever. Um, yeah. I think he lives his life in that, in basically a, a pepper shaker on an elevator. <laughs> if that's the case, he's an even more bigger idiot because he's the world's easiest assassination target. Clearly. Uh, um, I would have much preferred to see, seen have seen him uh, introduced earlier into the story. Yeah, I would have found it really interesting to like I get that they wanted to keep the reveal of what he looks like till the yeah. end. Okay, that's fine. But I would have liked if like you know if we heard the Daleks getting orders from him. Yeah. Like even if the cutaway scenes and you just hear like a Dalek voice kind of like, you know, back in Dalek's Master Plan, it would cut away to the Dalek Supreme. Yeah. Yeah. Which I... Diana Ross and the Supremes. No, I think like a burger. But yeah, I think that I think that probably would have made the character a bit more intimidating because we never hear about him until we effectively see him. I think no. if you had, I'm not a big fan of crosstalk between Daleks. I think I've said this before. Um, yeah. Maybe when we were discussing one of the Peter Cushing movies, I'm not a big mm. fan of crosstalk between Daleks. But I think in this story to have the Daleks communicating with each other and being like, the Emperor has ordered we return to Scarrow. Mm-hmm. You know, we have isolated the human factor. Return to Scarrow now. Do not let the Doctor escape or whatever. Like, I think, had we know, had we seen that the Emperor Dalek was more involved. Yeah, like if, even if we had hints of that there is an Emperor, mm. but we don't know what he is. Yeah, it, or like, even if you had like Alpha beta and omega like when they're mm. saying they have to return to scarrow yeah. if you'd said like you know the emperor dalek has told us we have to return yeah something like that do you know um yeah i mean it, it's an interesting development and in how many times can you upgrade a pepper pot i mean <laughs> but uh yeah i think a little bit underutilized yeah um there was just something uh, no I, I'm thinking I'm kind of like way down the line in the timeline when it comes to, to like you know Dalek stories <laughs> but it's just like you know him there roll out please protect me you know because obviously he can't fucking move <laughs> although like you never know like maybe some of his little like the ball parts mm-hmm. maybe some of them like drop open and like guns come out yeah we don't know he was taken by surprise. He had all these Daleks asking him why. And he's like, what the fuck is this? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh. I did not think this through. I did not. Th- you can tell that he sat there in that shell when they're firing him going. Well, this is a bad plan. We should not have allowed him to actually install the positron yeah. brain. Note for next time. Don't let him actually complete the experiment he thinks he's doing. That is bad. Ah, shit. I'm burning alive. (laughs) So, guys, that is the characters over and all the way with, and a very... (laughs) Both enlightening and humorous discussion. Yeah. Uh, 
Much like Jabba the Hutt, Jabba the, Jabba the Dalek, you're gone too soon. <laughs> uh, maybe the special edition animations might have him appear earlier in Doctor Who stories. Uh, so, um, we're going to give our overall. So, we ha- as always, we have our score out of five. So, do you want to lead this off? Yeah, sure. So, I messaged you last night. Saying, oh, Reconstructions, how I both love and hate you. Mm-hmm. Um, I love Reconstructions because we get to explore the story. I know a lot of these stories, you can get them as pure audio. Yeah. With linking narration and stuff like that. I know that. And like, some of them are available on vinyl and whatever. Um, for the sake of this podcast, having the visual representation is always good. Mm. But it's not the same... <laughs> do you know like it's nothing against the reconstructions we do not dock points for the reconstructions but in giving you know my overall feel for the story I'm really gutted that our timeline didn't line up with the animation release Yeah, and like maybe when the animation release comes out we might do like a quick rambling just to give our thoughts on it or something just because it's quite new mm. but um I love that we have reconstructions to help us watch these stories properly. Yeah. I hate that we have to have them. <laughs> um, and like David Whitaker, like I have got on ad nauseum on previous podcasts about how much I love the Crusades and his novelization of it. I think for all the red herrings and people listening to this may think that I didn't like this story because I kept mentioning what the fuck was that and who the fuck are they and what the hell is this I thought this story was amazing I Mm. thoroughly enjoyed it the things that I really liked was this introduction of like you said like the dark doctor like the doctor using his companions and really playing with their emotions and their lives is really interesting and like I said it's so much more believable than it would have been if that was with Doc Bill yes completely I would have liked to have more of a mention of the Doctor's previous trip to Scarrow so you mention it in your summary mm-hmm. but that is that is That's you me. inferring that he knew of that particular crevice because he'd been there before yeah. he never mentions the fact that he's been to this planet before he never mentions you know how he met them like he doesn't bring jamie up to speed on anything and i you know we don't need a long thing but like when he finds that crevice if someone how did you know that was there i've been here before there you go (laughs) one line acknowledge it um i think the human factor versus the dalek factor thing it's a little bit weak like i said in terms of a you know, it's not exactly a Dalek master plan. <laughs> um, it's more like a Dalek uh, mediocre idea that maybe should have been thought through, and you know, uh, well, they should have Mavic had a vote. Chen- they should have held a vote, like without Mavic Chen to fuck things up. How can we possibly lose? Yeah, like I mean, clearly the Emperor Dalek didn't write a paper on this, looking at like the benefits and weaknesses. Yeah. Um, but for me, it, it's it's so weird. It's like we've discussed like. Camel, I think, was underutilized. I think was undersold, um, in a big way. The mm. Terrell plot that kind of went nowhere. The Toby plot that kind of went nowhere. Weighing Victoria and like 
taking note of her measurements for seemingly no reason. Do you know what the answer is? None of that actually took away from the story really for me. Which yeah. is weird. And I think after I'm going to do this podcast because we keep seeing red herrings, I want to watch the movie Clue because of just that. I was like, communism was just a red herring. I was like, plus I've been hearing a lot about Clue over the last couple of weeks. I want to watch that movie again. But yeah, no, absolutely. Like the, um, normally, like we've kind of pointed out, like you know how plot holes they kind of take away from stuff. For it's like, why you take your screen time with this when you could have handed it to something else? No maybe some of like you mean the toby plot line or something like that could have gone towards a bit more of kemmel but i think even with the limitations kemmel we got across the point that kemmel is awesome yeah and i don't know more what we can do to sell kemmel in this story yeah i mean i don't want it to sound like you and i are just virtue signaling for the sake of it because that's not what this is no i genuinely would have liked to have seen that character be given more of a character to play with um but overall i gave this a 4.5 because it lost the 0.5 because i think they could have cut down or gotten rid of some of the red herrings and make it a six-parter yeah that was one question i was going to ask you did you think seven was just i think seven was too much Hmm. i didn't it wasn't like with the daleks though do you remember the daleks i was like ah fuck this episode (laughs) yeah <laughs> and i really didn't like that with seven episodes this one i was still like when we were i was about halfway through episode six and i was like this isn't coming to an end hmm. huh there's seven right <laughs> cool but it wasn't a case of i got to episode the end of episode six and i was like oh for fuck's sake i have another one to go it was like okay end of episode six take a quick break okay back into episode seven how the fuck are we resolving this what's happening do you know um, yeah. So I couldn't bring myself to dock it more than half a point for all those other things because while I would have liked if those things were done better, I still thoroughly enjoyed what I was given. Mm. And like I said, I'm really looking forward to seeing the animation of this. And I'm gutted that it wasn't ready in time for us to watch that version instead. Um. So yeah, like I'm in agreement with nearly everything you said. Um. I think to cap off the second Doctor's first season, uh, it it start it's ended the same way it finished with a very strong Dalek story, and it again also did what the first one did, which was introduce us to a new version of the Doctor, which we said was the Dark Doctor. Um, I like the Victorian setting because it kind of reminded me of a small bit of steampunk, <laughs> um, and I did like to see like. I did like the concept of a Dalek story based primarily in the past. Mm. Uh, no, granted it was confined to one house, but I still thought it was kind of cool because it's the characters from that setting that helped make the story what it was. And like, I'm agree, I agree with you is that all the stuff that was kind of left dangling, all the little kind of red herrings and stuff like that, I wasn't mad. No. I wasn't annoyed. And while yes, I thought Seven might have been a bit of a stretch, I still wasn't bored no and no the main things I didn't particularly like were that I was a bit let down by the Dalek Emperor like so apart from his one haha fuck you moment you know with the whole the, you, you you have an like I want to see a big Dalek mustache so that he could twirl us kind of going this was my plan all along um, I, did, I didn't think his presence was as grand as his title made it out to be you know mm. 
So I am like you. I am giving this a four point five. Very good. Very good. And we're back on track after the faceless ones were <laughs> were back on the same footing. We are. We are. So that brings us to the end of season four. Mm-hmm. Not season three that I accidentally said the other day because I'm an idiot. So just for a bit of a summary for people. So for season one, we had a, a shared average. So yeah. your average was 4.16 and my average was 4.16. Season one was very strong. It um, was. I think we each had two stories that were less than a four and that was it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, season two, you were four point two two. I was three point eight nine, largely due to the Space Museum. And the Space Museum. My displeasure with that story, which gave us an average of four point zero six. And the chase as well. You weren't overly happy with the chase. Yeah. You marked it, marked that as a three, whereas I marked that as a four. Yeah, I think I was just sad. Yeah. Um, but Space Museum, I gave less than a three, which is why I called it down. Oh, yeah. Um, into season three, <laughs> and we see a bit of a nosedive. So you averaged yeah. season three three point one nine, and had no story there got a four or higher. Yeah, I averaged two point nine four, <laughs> and although I did have a a record low of being below a fucking point. <laughs> yeah, so you had something that got not point five, yeah. but your highest was three point seven five. Mm-hmm. My lowest was one, and my highest was three point five. And th- yeah, I gave mission to the unknown, which doesn't have the fucking doctor or anyone in it as the three point seven five. Yeah. Um. So that season was three point zero six is the average, so a full mm-hmm. point lower than the prior season. Season three, we're getting back up in the good graces. We have a, had a couple this week or this season that we weren't great with. Underwater menace was equally low for both of us. Um, and then we have like Macra and the Faceless Ones, which didn't do as strongly. Better for me than you, but not yeah. that much of a big difference overall. So your average is 3.56. My average for the first time ever is higher than yours. <laughs> <sighs> My average is 3.69. See, I'm not a total bitch. My average is 3.69. For a combined average for season four of 3.63, which places our average for Doctor Who from stories one to 36 of the first four seasons, our combined average is a 3.61. Which I'm happy with that. I'm very happy with that. And we know the reason why it is as low as it is, is because of the dark days of season three. (laughs) Yeah. Um, you know, no offense to Jackie Lane and Peter Ferris and obviously to William Hartnell, but there were several stories in there where it was like struggling to get higher than a three. Um, whereas like season one is our strongest combined Mm -hmm. out the gate, season two was your or season two, yeah, season two was your strongest, season one was our combined strongest out the gate. But yeah, I think we're we're back on that upswing, yeah, I think we are. And we're about to start season five uh, with a very, very special episode. The Tomb of the Cyber. And the reason it's so special is because it is the first completely intact Patrick Troughton story. Hooray! So, tune in next week, guys, where we discuss this landmark story for Patrick Troughton. 
and we also asked the question just how into the Cybermen they really are. <laughs> <laughs> so until then, guys, talk to you next week. Bye. Bye.